Hi everyone, today is March 20th, 2014. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Massimo Scanciani, who is professor in the section of neurobiology at UCSD and an investigator at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Hi Massimo. Hi. Uh, his research applies various methods to defining the core principles by which the elements of cortical architecture orchestrate cortical activity. Around the room we've got Charlie Wilson. Hello. Hi, Charlie. We've got uh, Alfonso Apicella. Hello. Hi, Alfonso. And we've got Todd Troyer. Hello. And me, I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So, okay, let me just get started here. So I want to hit on a couple of different themes with you, um, all based on the idea of building generalizable principles of cortical circuit processing. Um, the first is about thalbocortical and intracortical excitatory interactions in mouse V1 that you spent a lot of time on, and how basically you found that, um, I guess what seemed like a relatively small amount of tuned thalamic inputs to layer four, how they're conveyed and amplified intracortically. Could you say something about this and tie it into kind of the global picture of how and where primary sensory representations take shape, what we're kind of understanding about that recently? And then the next theme that I'm kind of, we never get to the next one, but if I hope I'm hoping we get to it because it's really important. We've talked about it a lot here with other guests. Is um, is how likely it is that we'll ever be able to deliver um, sort of a standard functional connectivity map among cortical inhibitory interneurons. So, so rather than excitation, in, the inhibitory um, map that overlays on the canonical excitatory feedforward cortical circuit. Um, but first, I want to get to the cortical amplification story. Um, yeah. And, so so. So, uh, li like everyone, I'm fascinated by the cortex because uh, maybe because uh, we don't know what it does and we don't know how it does it, and yet uh, we attribute to it uh, every possible function, and and uh, and it has a mystique at this point, right? And um, <clears throat> to some extent, I have to say, at least experimentally, the cortex has been quite disappointing in our hands, <laughs> and uh, it has been disappointing because um, uh, it seems that. Uh, what it does for the few experiments that we, we, we've performed is um, essentially only amplify a signal that comes already with its own uh, shape uh, in space and in time and uh, doesn't seem to add uh, much more to it. So what, what, uh, what I showed today is that um, uh, the thalamus uh, um, provides visual cortex with um, uh, visual information and uh, and that visual information already contains the seeds uh, for the orientation tuning that the cortex is going to amplify. I haven't shown uh, it today, but we have data also that uh, uh, suggests that the thalamus also provides information with regard to direction selectivity, not only orientation selectivity. And what the cortex does, it seems that uh, it, uh, it only amplifies that information rather than transforming it, right? And uh, I've shown also today that... Uh, uh, even even what we thought the cortex could do, which is somehow um, prolong the representation of a stimulus through its immense recurrence uh, connectivity, uh, seems not to be the case, at least for primary sensory cortex. It's uh, uh, the, the temporal fidelity of the cortex with respect to 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 to, to the thalamic input. It's uh, it's quite remarkable. So on one side we have this cortex with um, with um, operates as a as an amplifier and doesn't seem to add much um, uh, to what the thalamus tells it to do. 
And, um, and on the other hand, we have this uh, incredible connectivity within the cortex and those, uh, all those cell types, uh, those uh, uh, various uh, um, excitatory cell type, inhibitory cell type, very specific connectivity pattern. And, um, and the question is, well, do we need all of this just to amplify a signal, essentially? And I, I'm, I'm, I hope that this is not the final answer, right? But yet speaking uh, recently with, uh, with, uh, with a few colleagues, uh, um, the idea came out that um, even if one wanted just to amplify, to maintain uh, a stability in an amplification, um, that uh, relies on very sophisticated circuitry. So even just amplifying a signal, right, and maintaining a proper dynamic range and being able not to distort, not, not, not to distort neither uh, spatial information nor temporal information, that might necessitate quite some sophisticated circuitry, right, which, uh, which is possibly one of the reasons why the cortex is so rich in cell types and, uh, and, um, and, uh, and connectivity pattern. So, so, so for the moment, I, I hope uh, we will find it one day. But we haven't found uh, any any property in uh, at least mouse visual cortex, right, which seems really to to emerge from a very sophisticated connectivity of mouse visual cortex, and not be in one way or another somehow inherited from the connectivity of the thalamus into the cortex. So, so I have, a, I, have a, I guess two two kinds of comments to to that and. I was wondering, one way to think about it is that, um, so you start with the kind of basic stimuli to probe what, what's happening, the responses to contrast and, and spatial frequency and temporal frequency and, and gradings and, and other kinds of things. And maybe the stable of, of simple stimuli that people have gotten to characterize things that are robust enough uh, for people to use are exactly those things where it's simple enough that the cortex doesn't have to do anything with them, right? And so it's when you get it into to the stimuli that give uh, a variety of responses or inconsistent responses that you can't make sense of and you can't have a hard time comparing them across labs and stuff. And that's kind of what the cortex is doing, is the kind of the fancier idiosyncratic stuff. Yeah, uh, very good point. I think that, uh, yeah, there is some hope, right? Uh, I... Um, I agree with that, and um, we, we also have in mind a few experiments that we would like to, to, to test. Uh, um, so first of all, if we want to, to discover some stuff that the cortex might be doing and what we're missing, we need to do the experiments inevitably in awake animals, and maybe not even in passive viewing animals, but in actively viewing animals. Maybe present, uh, present visual scenes that um, are of some uh, relevance for the animal. Relevance maybe either innate relevance or learned relevance, right? So that, that's the first point. And the second point uh, is, uh, is maybe uh, those, those stimuli are not constrained enough in order to, 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 um, you know, to trigger what the cortex uh, is there for, if it's there for anything. Uh, but we would need um, uh, more complex statistics, maybe natural statistics, maybe stimuli which are much more complex, uh, within which uh, the animal needs to search and find, uh, um, I, I don't know, uh, uh, some very specific aspect in a natural setting which is going to be relevant for it uh, um, uh, biologically, essentially. And maybe under those conditions we would, uh, we would be able to, to reveal... Uh, some of the some of the critical properties of the cortex. I, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. 
because the the other kind of flip side on that, which may be a different answer that becomes the same answer. So suppose you do think of the cortex as a bunch of as mostly doing gain control of yes. amplification. Yeah. Well, the question is how sophisticated and how specific your amplifiers could be. So if you want to do something that's uh, specific to complicated stimuli, well, you may want to turn up this feature and that feature there and some kind of crazy combination across the stimulus thing. And then what you are is being selective and kind of new properties that are a complex pattern of of gain modulation. Uh, and then the ability to do that flexibly and specifically is kind of where the properties come by. I agree. Yes. I agree. This is this is this is another view of the cortex, which is uh, essentially we shouldn't look for the cortex of the one that invents uh, new things, but um, if we look at the output, even from a, 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 a structure as a, as near to the sensory periphery as V1, right? It sends output uh, with different separate channels in many many brain areas to other cortical areas, but to plenty of subcortical areas, to the accessory optic system, to various thalamic nuclei, to pontine nuclei, right? All of those outputs, right, must uh, contain information that is relevant uh, to their targets. And so, as you are saying, maybe um, depending on, on on the conditions, depending on your experience, you want to increase the gain of some output and shut down the gain of other output because uh, at that moment one given stimulus is more relevant than the other or or because based on what you have learned uh, or your attention one stimulus is more relevant to another so maybe maybe just uh, looking at the cortex uh, at least primary visual cortex because this is what I'm talking about right now simply as a giant um, control board right uh, is is a is a sophisticated task enough like a, gu- a guitar amplifier where you have each knob to control bass, middle frequency, high frequency? Yeah, like many guitars amplifier, like a whole Oscar orchestra amplifier, right? Yes. It seems like what you said about the time constant, though, is, uh, is, is really efficient, especially in terms of V1. I mean, the signal's gone after 10 milliseconds, you said. There's yeah, no yeah. remnant left. Yeah. But presumably that's all the system needs yes. at that sampling yeah. level maybe yeah. and yeah. the signal's gone elsewhere it's no longer i mean it's waiting for the next input right so 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 again there were there was a, a if you want again a form of disappointment right we were hoping to reveal uh, some form of persistent activity in visual cortex once one removes uh, instantaneously it's, it, it's instantaneously it's sensory input right the idea was uh, well maybe that's a uh, uh, we're going to reveal at least some integrative properties of the cortex. It maintains uh, some visual information for some time, and then, uh, depending on what comes afterwards or so, it's going to be integrated and dispatched to, to various areas. We haven't seen that because uh, a time constant of 10 milliseconds is essentially the time constant of a neuron, right? It couldn't even be much faster than that if you wanted. So, there are two possibilities. Either it is that fast because it's a primary sensory area. And so that's the way it's, nece- it's necessarily so because it needs to be very responsive to time-varying stimuli. And so it has to have a fast time constant. Or it is like this because uh, the animal, despite awake, was not engaged in the stimulus. This was passive viewing. And so maybe things are going to change the time, the day in which uh, we ask the animal to discriminate between stimuli, and then maybe some form of attention would produce some longer integration time in visual cortex. Or maybe it is, um, it is that um, 
that no matter which cortical area you are, a very remote area, you need a loop with the thalamus. And so maybe our corticocentric view, thinking that everything that we observe in the cortex is done in the cortex, is simply wrong. And maybe even the working memories that have been found in, in, in um, prefrontal cortices are not just done by the cortices, they are uh, the cortex in a loop with some um, uh, subcortical areas, maybe including the thalamus. And so, uh, as long as we're searching for things that the cortex by itself is able to do, we're going to be disappointed. So is it true in the mouse? I know in the, in the cat, it said that 10% 10, 10 of the inputs to, to V1 are from thalamus. Yeah. However, you found that 30, after turning the cor all the intracortical stuff off, that 30% of the excitation was actually coming from thalamus. So is, is, is it, so a relatively small input for what kind of excitation you're seeing. Is that true? I mean, is, is there any disconnect there with the... No, I think that's a, that um, uh, uh, both are true, but uh, I think both come from different experiments. So the 10% is an anatomical set of data. Which is about 10% of the uh, of the afferents that go into into layer four in the cat are actually from the thalamus. 10% of the synapses and all other synapses, 90 or maybe even 95%, come from the cortex. What I have measured, however, is the excitation, and so it is possible that the disconnect is just an apparent disconnect. Maybe even in the mouse, there is only 10% of the synapses that are made by the thalamus and 90% are for the cortex. But maybe the synapses are stronger, and so they provide more excitation. That could be one reason why it ends up with 30% coming from the thalamus in terms of synapse, in terms of excitation. And the possibility is that uh, when you give a certain stimulus, maybe you activate all thalamic input, but only a fraction of cortical input, and so maybe you have done uh, this disconnect, right? That, mm, that when you look at the anatomy, you look at all the risks to, to look at. When you look at excitation, you look only at those neurons that are actually active. So, so I have a, I have a kind of a, a strange question about uh, these these questions of how much input comes from the thalamus or the cortex always seem uh, kind of strange because uh, so as you presented it was like oh the the dominance is from the from the cortex a lot a lot more and it's two to one or three to one or something like that and I was thinking like why does that seem like a lot or a little bit. I mean, where's our expectation come from that it's supposed to be, is it just supposed to flow through the thalamus that comes through because of our information of sensory processing and that it just comes through and dominates things and you can do little tweaks? And then, then I would say, yeah, you expect, you know, 70, 80% coming from the thalamus. But if you think the cortex does everything in the brain and the rest of the stuff is just kind of down there, why would it be dominated by something as lowly as the thalamus? I mean, it, that seems like maybe we have a small... Uh, a small contribution from the cortex. And I just don't know where or what you think about where the expectation would come from about what even, how do you make a sense of that number? Yeah, it's true, right? Why should we be surprised in one way or another if they're not uh, um, a priori, anyhow, right? That contrast with that expectation. Um, <clears throat> well, what can I say about that? I don't know. Because Hugo and Weasel told us it was like that in the 1960s. And it was convincing, it was compelling. And and we still read it, it still influences us. We still So in the diagram of how a simple cell comes to be a simple cell, a bunch of th thalamic cells lined up, and their receptive fields, when superimposed, create the receptive field of the simple cell. That was the model they offered. It was a long time ago, and 
it was a sophisticated model at the time, even if it doesn't sound very sophisticated now. And the and the premise of that was that the cortex is isn't um, it's, it's not that it's doing nothing, it's that it's intelligently combining thalamic inputs. And in fact, their whole view, which I think is still basically our view of the, of the visual cortex, is that the connectivity's job is to combine things in clever ways. So that now we take all the things that are red and square and put them together into some little circuit that responds to red square things. The things that are round and, and red get put into another little circuit for round and red things. So uh, there's almost no room for feedback, right, in that, in that sort of scheme. And so I think the feedback, well, I remember the first time I heard that number, 90%, I was, I was shocked. I'm not shocked anymore, but I thought, you know, I think that that's where, um, and in fact, once you have, once you leave that, once you leave that old view, the feed-forward view of the cortex, there's a certain emptiness about uh, how do we interpret the circuitry? How are we going like, to take what we know about the anatomy and say what the function is going to be? Because in the feed-forward way, you could take the anatomy. You could say, okay, the cell's round and red, and there's another round red cell, and they're going to converge onto onto some other cell. So you find your grandmother. And you find, eventually you find your grandmother. <laughs> that was, and then you, you could imagine, I'm going to take the cortical circuitry apart. I'm going to see all of those connections. I'm going to learn the dimensions of the visual world as seen by the V1, what the relevant dimensions are. And it's all going to be done by combinatorics. That's, mm -hmm. going, to, that's going to do it. But in feedback, the combinatorics kind of fall apart because things build on themselves instead of combining with other things. And so I, I still think it's fascinating and shocking to see that, you know, the cortex is, is creating so much of that image, even if it's doing it in a very orderly way, without runaway feedback. Right. So the feedback that, that does seem to be there is the, kind, the same kind that's sort of in my amplifier. In my interest recording amplifier, I use positive feedback to get the time constant down, to make things fast, so that action potentials are their real duration and not 10 times longer because of the crazy dynamics right. of the amplifier. So if the cortex is going to be able to reproduce visual scenes, we have a flicker fusion frequency at 30 hertz or so, the cortex has got to be able to follow changes in the visual scene up to 30 hertz, or, or that would match our experience. Right. Right. So that's, all of that aspect of feedback seems super satisfying to me. Yep. But I feel that I've lost the combinatorics. So as we unravel more of the cortical circuitry, are we going to discover the combinatoric aspect of visual processing again? Are we going to recover that in a hierarchy of combinatorics? Um, from, uh, I mean, uh, I... I clearly I don't know. There are two views, right, in terms of uh, of how you get your your grandmother. One uh, is uh, <clears throat> the original view in which you go from um, primary to secondary sensory areas and you move up the hierarchy and you create those combinations and eventually all those uh, little features together give rise to your grandmother. And um, <clears throat> and there are evidences for grandmothers in in the cortex, right? You put. Uh, 
there are face cells uh, you, you, in that experiment from Koch uh, a few years ago. There was an electrode implanted in the cortex of some patient, and uh, those cells would uh, uh, respond only for holy berry, either as a face and written, and not for any combination. So. Uh, that was not his grandmother, by the way, but it could have been, right? And so that, that's that's um, so there are evidence for grandmother cell. What I'm saying is not um, uh, there is this evidence. On the other hand, however, the point is how do we get there, right? And uh, do we get there really from by moving from uh, uh, one cortical area to the next according to an anatomical hierarchy? Or do we get there by bouncing information back and forth from the cortex to the thalamus, back to the cortex and through the thalamus, via, via the pulvinar, for example, for the visual system? And um, uh, uh, Murray Sharman, for example, has been a promoter of the idea that actually uh, the, the main driver lines are not from one cortical area to the next, but it has to bounce back to the thalamus and then back up. Which, which would bring uh, the thalamus uh, much more into the loop of, of, uh, of actually sensory processing and transformation, transformation of information from one area to the next, uh, as compared to simply once it gets to the cortex, then it stays there, and it remains there until you discover your grandmother somewhere. So, so I, I don't know. I really I, I'm, uh, right now, I'm not even sure what type of experiments to do, right? To, to know... Um, where to look at where transformation changes, right? For the moment, in fact, it's honestly, it's a little bit magic, right? I don't doubt the fact that there are Hollyberry neurons, and I don't, and, and it's obvious that even in monkey, you have those super specialized cells like face recognition cell, like mirror neurons, etc., etc. But it is absolutely not clear how you go from an orientation tuned cell to a cell that recognizes a face, right? And um, if we want to figure it out, we need to begin knowing what pathway it takes, at least from the uh, orientation tuned cell to, uh, to the face cell. We need to know whether that whole thing stays in the, in the cortex and doesn't need to go down uh, to the thalamus anymore, or whether the transformation, if it's a transformation as we imagine it, occurs just by, by bouncing back information from V1 to the thalamus, back to V2, from V2 back to the thalamus, and then to higher cortical areas and so on. And, and um, I think that's the first important question, because when we figure out how information gets transmitted from, uh, from lower to higher area, then maybe we can follow how slowly an orientation-tuned cell transformed uh, um, information taken from orientation-tuned cell gets to into a face or into a mirror neuron or, or as far as I'm concerned, to a place cell or a grid cell. It does sound like the kind of experiment that you might do. We're, we're because you, because uh, what your techniques are great at are now isolating projections that used to always be stimulated together. Yeah. And so I guess uh, if you go to a higher order visual area and look at the visual cortex input yes. to that. Yes, this is what we're starting to do. Absolutely. Yes. Looking correctly here and there. But Massimo, if you think about uh, the efficiency of the system, basically it's going to be a lot of cost of energy if always the information is into the cortex, to the towers, back to the cortex, down, back in. Do you have to pay by the millimeter? Is that... No, pay by the millimeter. I think, you know, all these people, you know, they study entropy. It seems that right now the, uh, the entropy of this system is maximized. Correct. I don't know. I, 
I, I don't have an answer for that. This is why I was. Uh, it is closer. Okay. To not go down to the thalamus. <laughs> I was just wondering uh, how the brain calculates the, the costs of things. Of this distance. Well, actually, it's true that uh, axonal length has been often invoked as something that yeah. needs to be minimized. Yes. And if information uh, keeps on going back and forth, then that's a bad way to minimize it. I, I never thought about it. That's a good point. It's a good point. Yeah. On the other hand, I mean, one cannot forget, uh, we, 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 when we think about a thalamic input, um, you know, the first thing that comes, one, comes into mind is obviously the input from a primary sensory nucleus to the cortex, and then we think about the rest of the cortex as being thalamic independent. And that's simply anatomically wrong, right? Every part of the cortex receives massive, tal massive I mean, receives thalamic inputs uh, uh, from secondary nuclei, and the secondary nuclei get their information from pri pri primary cortical areas. So, so clearly the route, right, to go back and forth, like... Uh, uh, Guillory and Sherman uh, suggest exist, and, uh, and they have uh, also good physiological evidence for this to be actually a major route. They, they make the distinction between drivers and modulators, I, yeah. I don't know if you, if you remember. And, and I think there is a, there is a, it's, it's a hypothesis that needs to be, to be taken into consideration very, very much so, actually. So in thinking about drivers and modulators, I, I'm reminded that you're, that you're data suggested that the primary effect of the corticothalamic pathway was on nucleus reticularis, yes. and, that the, and that the huge projection to the lateral geniculate, uh, its effect was hard to detect yes. in comparison yeah. to the inhibitory yeah. Yeah. That's true. So That's did, layer 6, though, right? Uh, layer 6. So, but, but what about that? I mean, the layer 6 projects to the, to the relay nuclei in a huge way, yeah. and the uh, uh, according to Murray Sherman, this should be a modulatory input that acts through G protein coupled receptors or yes. something like yeah. that. But is it hard to see any effect of it at all? Okay, so so it is hard to see any, any effect given the experiment that we did. Our, our experiment was to activate uh, layer 6 uh, corticothalamic neurons, and um, what we observed is a strong suppression of uh, LGN, that's, uh, that's very clear. <clears throat> now, we, we have also data that suggests that this strong suppression comes from the nucleus reticularis, this, uh, the, this, this massive uh, inhibitory um, uh, nucleus that projects to the, to the LGN, and we know that layer six corticothalamic neurons sends a branch to the, to the nucleus reticularis thalamus. So, so it, it makes uh, uh, both physiological and anatomical sense. Now, this said, uh, um, I could, uh, and, and so my, 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 my opinion uh, is that uh, layer 6 uh, corticothalamic neurons have a nest suppressive effect on the LGN. So it's a negative feedback, okay? This, this, I stand to that. But this doesn't mean that this suppression doesn't have a special profile into, onto the LGN. There might be neurons that are more suppressed than other if there was a special profile because there is a retinotopy from layer 6 down to the thalamus. And so it could be possible that uh, maybe um, uh, that uh, um, pathways that goes from the retina to the LGN to a group of neurons in the cortex that is particularly activated, maybe it's suppressed a little bit less than the surround, giving rise to a form of... Uh, 
overall suppression, but with a stronger surround suppression, right? So uh, there may there may be well a, a structure, a special structure to that suppression. So if we took out the nucleus reticularis altogether and just looked at layer six projections of the thalamus, yeah. we might see cell C suppression, you think? Do you think that the glutamate effects in the relay nuclei might be net it, inhibitory also? It, it could also be net inhibitory, but uh, through uh, the local inhibitory neuron. So the, uh -huh. one of the few uh, nuclei in the thalamus that contain, uh, primary sensory nuclei that contain uh, uh, inhibitory neuron is also the LGN. And so it's possible that that uh, glutamate release from layer six cells onto the thalamus, onto the LGN, uh, activates those inhibitory neurons, which then would also suppress through their GABA. But I don't know that. I haven't done the experiment. Can I ask another technical question? I know you guys want to talk about it. No, we won't have time for inner neurons. <laughs> Go ahead. We won't have time for inner neurons. we got to have time for inner We'll make time. Okay. So here's my, here's my other technical question. It has to do with the, the orientation selectivity story. Yes. So the, the orientation selectivity uh, arises in the cortical neurons that you studied because of an offset in the two the center responses uh, of uh, uh, and well, the so to, you know, to on and off yes. inputs, yes. and so uh, that the surround doesn't actually appear. So the thalamic neurons ha should have an inhibitory surround. And the old story about orientation selectivity yep. in simple cells yep. relied on the inhibitory surround in a way. Your explanation doesn't rely on any inhibitory no, surround. No, because uh, well. The fact that it doesn't appear is because we couldn't measure it. Uh -huh. So it might be, it might well be that uh, if our receptive, or if our measurements of receptive field structures had been uh, uh, more sophisticated, uh, or uh, or um, yes, more sensitive, we could have seen not only the center uh, but also the surround. And uh, we haven't seen the surround. So, so the surround would appear as a as a. Um, um, uh, disfacilitation as a removal of excitation. Yes, as a removal. So to see that, you need to have you some need, sort of cranked up uh, excitation. You, you need to have some baseline activity, yeah. essentially. We would see this as a, as a redox, but we had some uh, thalamic baseline activity. So, what I believe is if, if we had sampled uh, um, 10 times more uh, uh, data, we could have uh, maybe seen some. Uh, but your mechanism doesn't actually require it. But the mechanism per se, in order to. In order to the mechanism per se, in order to account for the uh, orientation tuning that, that we see, doesn't doesn't necessitate. It just necessitates a separation of the on center and the off yeah. center. Right. That's uh, that's all we need. So are those simple cells? Those are simple cells. Yeah. Those are simple cells. Almost all uh, cells in layer four in the mouse have a oh, really? have simple cell properties. Yes, yeah. if you look at their spike, and you know they're very well F1 modulated. Okay, I'm done with that. <laughs> Can I move over to interneurons then? Yeah. So, okay, so, so some of your recent data have shown that um, the gene expression pattern is a strong predictor of connectivity between interneurons and the visual cortex. And this kind of validates the, um, this molecular marker categorization approach over, I guess, older, I shouldn't say older, but more traditional methods of electrophysiological or subjective morphological um, characterization. So given our more refined categorization approaches that are kind of happening now, um, 
where do you see, how close are we to having a causal link between, you know, molecular expression patterns and the various functional and morphological properties of a given neuron category? I mean, and how important do you think that is? Just say something about this for us. So, so I think we're still very far from causal. But, uh, but uh, I, I believe that, um, that uh, genetic expression patterns are going to be the way by which we're going to finally find a consensus in terms of cell types, both excitatory and inhibitory in the cortex. Uh, and that consensus, because uh, it's going to be essentially an objective measure, in my opinion. So the next step is... Um, to start uh, do, doing the entire transcriptome, not just uh, fishing for a few genes like we did uh, in the past, just uh, we, we fish for 20 or 30 genes and then we presented the one that correlated best with some functional property and network property, but it's to, to look for the entire transcriptome and, um, and start making correlation with uh, the transcriptome of an individual neuron and whatever property is of interest for you of that neuron. Uh, in what layer it is, where it projects, uh, uh, what input it gets from, and ideally uh, its tuning property. Is it tuned, uh, w whether it's tuned to vertical bars or horizontal bars, whether it's uh, the spatial frequency tuning is uh, so much or so much, and, uh, and find the genes that correlates the best, that predicts that, that, uh, that uh, the gene or set of genes that predict the tuning properties the best. That would give um, us, um, uh, to begin with, a, uh, a sort of objective handle on those neurons. Uh, we don't lo no longer need to dispute as whether this is really a basket cell or not a basket cell because you threw it this way, I threw it this way. Does it express this set of genes or not? Uh, and, uh, and we know it. And if we can correlate gene expression with all other features of neurons that we are interested in, uh, projections, anatomical, functional, for example, when we look at them in vivo, that would be fantastic because simply by looking at the gene expression pattern by using some uh, in situ hybridizations or so, we could be we would be able to identify the functional properties of uh, of entire cortical maps, which uh, and connectivity property, which which I would find spectacular. And, um, and not only, even, even if, uh, and if we had uh, those correlates, strong correlates, we could start, uh, would then have a, 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 a hook to, to, to the perturbation of those neurons, right? Uh, one, uh, one, one person today during the seminar suggested, what if you were to remove all the neurons that are tuned to a given orientation? Well, if I knew that there is a specific molecular marker, even if it's just correlative, in any neuron that have that orientation, now I could get into them and kill them, right? And um, uh, and and that that would be that would be great uh, from uh, from clearly from a basic science point of view because perturbing a, a specific function in the in the cortex. Uh, would elucidate about the, f the, the role of that function, right? But it, it would be very, very cool also in the clinic, right? If, uh, if, there are, if I know that uh, a brain is dysfunctional because that particular function is overrepresented, for example, then I tune it down by targeting those neurons molecularly. So, so I think that finding even just correlative maps between correlations, between gene expression, and uh, whatever property you want of a neuron is going to be of immense use, immense. Uh, one, one, one question about that whole proposal in terms of 
uh, it's interesting about how far it goes, right? So the question then becomes, if the, the, if the correlation at that level, at the very specific level, is really strong, then you have to question, what is so what is brain plasticity? That would mean that if you change any of those things, then you're going to have to change all those uh, molecular gene expression kind of patterns uh, to do that. So that means that you're limited... Well, I don't know whether you're limited or not, but any kind of brain plasticity that you imagine would then really have to fundamentally change a lot of stuff about the That'd be great, about because the then you'd see the transcription change that accompanies that plasticity. You could use that as a marker for the plasticity. I don't think there's any reason to think that transcription is is more stable than everything else. Right. right. Yeah, I, I, I know. It's... it's uh... I, I agree with that. It's it, it's strange, right? When we think about finding a, a correlation between uh, some aspect of a neuron, might be a morphological aspect or functional aspect, and and the transcript uh, uh, seems possible as long as one thing. Well, but then how could things be plastic? But as you are saying, I think things could perfectly be plastic, and the transcript don't mm -hmm. be plastic, mm -hmm. right? Um, and uh, and there might be some aspect of a neuron that are not that plastic. For example, if I'm a layer six corticothalamic neuron and uh, I have a, a gene that correlates my with me being uh, not only layer six but also be corticothalamic, that might not necessarily be very subject to plasticity. I don't think that that I guess that that projection is not plastic. But maybe if I'm a layer six corticothalamic neurons. Uh, that make strong synapses onto the thalamus or make weak synapses might also be uh, correlated with another gene, and that aspect might be might be actually plastic. So 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 yes, I think that I think that that's a whole trove to discover. I think that, that there's going to be amazing discoveries in there in a, in finding just correlations between uh, gene expressions and function. And the reason is that. Uh, um, doing experiments that allow us to do the two, do deep sequencing, right? And at the same time, do this sequencing from the material that you get from one single neuron. And uh, knowing everything you want to know about that single neuron is becoming more and more feasible, right? You can uh, look at a neuron in vivo um, by looking at it uh, calcium transient under a two-photon microscope. Then you can label that particular neuron by photoactivating, photoactivatable GFP. Then you can cut slices from that brain that you image in vivo, and then you can sample the DNA from that neuron for which you know um, the, 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 the function described in vivo. Then you can suck up all the RNA, do deep sequencing, and right now it's, it's kind of cost prohibitive because uh, uh, that would cost... Um, uh, many tens of dollars a neuron. If you want to do thousands of neurons, that would become uh, difficult. But as you know, uh, we've seen the costs of uh, of, of, of full transcriptal analysis go down by orders of magnitude. So maybe it's going to cost fifty cents a cell <laughs> in a few years, and then we can do it for a thousand cells uh, for the three hundred fifty thousand cells of visual cortex in the mouse. I think you just proposed a giant grant for the brain initiative. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> done. Let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. This has been great. Uh, thanks for visiting with us, Massimo Scanciani. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. <laughs>